You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Money. What does the Bible say about it? We recognize our need for it to live and function in the world, but how should we manage it? Maybe a better question is, are we managing it? Or is money mastering us? As Christians, we recognize how we view or manage money cannot save us. Even our most generous acts cannot save us. Christ alone saves us through the most lavish generosity of all time, where he laid down his life as a sacrifice on the cross. Though our charity and how we manage money cannot save us, it speaks to how much we understand the generosity of God giving us his son so we can be reconciled to him for eternity. Therefore, money becomes an excellent diagnostic tool to identify where our heart is, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Good morning. Welcome. If you would, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy, which is toward the end of your Bible, right before 2 Timothy, just and also right after Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, just keep on going. Just know there's nothing shameful about being new or unfamiliar with your way around the Bible. And so we give those kind of instructions because sometimes there can feel shame when you're learning your way around the Bible. So 1 Timothy is toward the end. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to dive into this nice light topic. So we figured nice light sermon last week, hitting on subjects like abortion. Let's just follow it up with something light like money starting off this week. So here we go. That's where we're going to be at for the next four weeks. So a couple things real quick. Taylor Alley and Hunter and everyone else involved, thank you guys for helping to make that video for us just to give us a little bit of a framework about what the series is going to be. If you guys couldn't recognize, that was Hunter's voice. Good job, guys. Yeah. And John Phillips snoring is legendary, but I will say this. He has committed himself to not be mediocre in any area of life, and so if he's going to do something, he's going to be the best, and we should acknowledge that and, and honor that. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, with that... We should probably pray. Let's pray. Yeah. Father, we recognize this. There's a lot of pain and sadness and grief going on around the world. We recognize this truth and cling to this, that you're good. As a reminder of what one pastor once said is, Father, when we can't make sense of your hands, what we can do is trust your heart. And in the midst of pain and turmoil and everything going on in the world, but also inside of our own personal church family, Father, we pray that we would remember and cling to that truth, that you're good. Father, we praise you that you've displayed the goodness of your love. Being infinitely wealthy, Father, you could have given anything, but the one thing that would show the magnitude of your love is to give your only son. And through you giving your son and Jesus, Lord, through you coming, we have hope. We are rescued. We are purchased, not by gold or perishable things. We are purchased by your blood. And I pray that we would walk out of here this day understanding more of what it is to be purchased by you. What it is that you've endured for us to be purchased. We pray the gospel's heralded loud this morning and so clear and that through it lives are saved and transformed. We pray this doesn't just happen in here. We pray that it happens with our kids in the kids ministry this morning. We pray the same gospel is preached and taught and heralded. We pray that from a young age, you would teach our kids about who you are and what you've done that you would save them, that you would transform their lives to be little missionaries that go and live in this world as a light for you, Jesus. So as the teachers back there with our kids this morning teach, let them teach clearly and faithfully to your word. 
pour your spirit out upon their time and upon our time, challenging us, encouraging us, exhorting us, and Father, healing us through your gospel and through your word. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this morning. As Ian reminded us, the Christian life is not a one-time mark of repentance and faith. It's an ongoing daily work. This morning, Father, let us walk in that repentance and faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to be at this morning. Where do we start with the topic of money? There are so many things we could say. There are so many things that we could address, so many stories that we could tell. But just let me start off sharing a few things and even quotes that I've heard along the way. One time I heard and read this story. Whether if it's true or not, I don't know. But my spouse's credit card was stolen the other day. I haven't bothered reporting it because the thief spends much less than my spouse does. Another man said, I saw a homeless guy once on the street with a sign that said, one day, this could be you. At that moment, I put my money right back into my pocket just in case he's right. (laughs) Another story says that a man died and went to heaven. He was met at the pearly gates by St. Peter who led him down the golden streets. They passed by stately homes and beautiful mansions until they came to the end of the street where they stopped in front of a rundown cabin. The man asked St. Peter, why he would get a hut when there are so many mansions he could live in. St. Peter replied, I did the best I could with the money that you sent us. In other words, there wasn't much sent. What about the story of the junior high school teacher who asked her eight-year-old students sitting in Bible school for a Bible Sunday, if they had a million dollars, would they give to the missionaries? And they all proclaimed, absolutely, yes. They screamed it. Would you give $1,000? And again, they all screamed, yes, absolutely. How about $100? Yes, they all agreed. Would you give a dollar to the missionaries? She asked, and Johnny went silent. And she asked, Johnny, why did you go silent and clinch your pocket? And he said, because I actually have a dollar. Interesting. Caleb Rexius, our former worship director, once said when he preached on money years ago that what you do with $1 will be the same that you do with 10 and a hundred, and a thousand, and a million, and ten million. Yet many people believe, once I get this, then my life will be generous. Once I have this much, then I will display generosity. But the truth is, we will most likely do what we will do with the money we have then, reflected by how we use and spend our money now. Now, there's some humor in these stories, but our Bible has a lot to say about money. This morning, we're going to be looking at this. This is our main point, that money is a great diagnostic tool. As It said in the video, money is a great diagnostic tool. Think about this. How much do our Bibles talk about money? One group did a study, and this is what they recognized through their study. There are 2,350 verses concerning money in the Bible. Nearly 15% of everything Jesus spoke about was related to money or possessions. 16 out of the 38 parables dealt with the topic of money. The only subject Jesus taught more about than money was the kingdom of God. Why? Why does the Bible speak so much about money? Because it is a great litmus test, as one pastor once told me. If you want to know the spiritual health of your people, you can oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, look to the generosity displayed in the church because sometimes it's an understanding that a church who gives sacrificially and generously knows how much they've been given in Christ. Look at what 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13 says. This is Paul, the apostle 
uh, writing and, and teaching on the subject of what's called church discipline, something that we practice here. And if you're not familiar with that, church discipline is something that you practice within for your members. It's actually a discipline of love, just like you would discipline your children out of love, you would discipline a member. Someone is living a rogue lifestyle, wanting to just indulge themselves in their sin, we would turn them over to that sin to show that it's an empty well that's going to run dry in hopes they will be reconciled back into the body of God. But look at what Paul says here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. Listen, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you then would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you, to the church, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And this is where Paul directly opposes Tupac and says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, is it not those inside the church whom you should judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. Have you ever heard, I never have, of church discipline being practiced on someone for greed? I've heard it being practiced for someone who's living in sexual immorality. I've heard it practiced for someone who's just given their life over to addictions and to drunkenness. I have not heard it for greed. In fact, a pastor theologian and teacher who I love, Tim Keller says this, in all of his years of ministry, which I think is around 50 years, he's had people confess all sorts of sin to him, but he never, ever one time can remember a single person ever confessing greed. Why? Well, when you wake up in the bed with someone else, you recognize you've committed adultery, but greed is sneaky. It's subtle. It can sneak up on you. It, 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 it can be, per, uh, I'm sorry, it, it can come into your heart and slowly take over your heart without noticing it. So, Money is a serious subject that the Bible speaks clearly about. And so, yes, we are moving through a topical series, but let me say this, that our hope and goal is to preach expositionally through, which means that we hope to give you this. We hope to give you a robust biblical theology. In, in other words, a theology of the whole Bible and what it says about money and what it says about idolatry and what it says about greed. That's our hope. That's our goal. Not just to pull a text out randomly to try to support our own views on money, but to show you collectively what the Bible teaches and says about money as a whole. So with that, let's dive in this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at this. Money is a great diagnostic tool. We're going to start off in verse 2. There's a heading, at least in my Bible, it says, false teachers in true contentment. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels, or for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money is a great diagnostic tool. Let's walk through this. First, in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, what we are going to see is that it's a great tool 
to essentially see how we're trying to deal with our discontentment in life. So in five, six, seven, and eight, we're going to see how money is a great tool to deal with our discontentment in life. So verse five, that there's constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What does that mean? That there were people in Paul's time that believed that godliness was not a means to an end. It was not an end itself. They actually believed that if I could maintain godliness, then godliness itself would give me prosperity. And so what was happening is people would start to believe, great, if I can get godliness, that means that I can get riches. But we see this practiced throughout church history as well. In Roman Catholicism, they did the same thing. Godliness was a means to get something else. What was it? They sold indulgences. And you would go around and sell indulgences, and through indulgences, you could either pay for some time off for you in purgatory or for a loved one. But we fast forward to, to our day and age, and we see it through the prosperity gospel as well. Anyone on TBN who I would say, please, church family, do not watch TBN and do not support their ministry. Anyone on there is preaching and teaching a prosperity gospel that if you give this and do this, that health, wealth, success, and happiness is the byproduct of that. Godliness can be a means to a jaguar. Heard one, one time a rich man said, as he walked out of a church and into the next church, that I hope you'll have something else for me besides a jaguar today because I have 10 of those and I'm empty on the inside. What we must understand is that godliness, and when we look at money, it's, it's, it's not something that is a platform to get us more from God. Godliness is the means. It's what we get. I love what Dr. Philip Ryken says. Godliness is not a means to something else more valuable. It is supremely valuable all by itself. John Calvin said this, godliness itself is a sufficiently great gain to us because through it, we become not only heirs of the world, but are enabled to enjoy Christ and all his riches forever. You see, people then and people now think that once I come to God, that God can be a means and godliness can be a means for me to get something else that's greater than God himself. Look at verse six. But godliness with contentment, as we just said, that's great gain. That's gain in and of itself. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. As the saying goes, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. We came into this world with nothing. We leave out of this world with nothing. All possessions are checked at the graveside. Yet we live life for possession after possession after possession. Which is why the saying goes, if you are not content with what you have now, just know this, that only means that you will not be content with what you want. In other words, if you're not content with all that you have now and think that something else is gonna make you content, the proof is, is once you have that, a better physique, a new car, a new degree, the next step, the next, the next, the next, the next, is that you will not be content once you have that as well. In fact, contentment looking for created things and monetary things is like salt water. The more you drink, the more you become dehydrated and the more you feel like you need. It's consuming, which is why Paul speaks to it in this way here. Godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, which is why Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. In other words, more and more and more is not going to fix the discontentment, the shame, the guilt. All that you feel on the inside is not going to be purchased with something other than God himself, not his created things. But it's a lie the enemy continues to tell us to believe 
and believe and believe. I love this poem written by a teenager. I wish we could put it up, but I can send it out and share it with you guys if you would like it. Think about this. A teenager wrote this. I mean, you talk about wisdom beyond their years. Teenagers in the room, listen to this. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child and it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Man, godliness with contentment is great gain. But we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. Well, there is hope because the Apostle Paul himself said, and just so you know, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was set up for great wealth because the Pharisees themselves had great wealth, which is why they hated Jesus' teaching. One of the reasons why. They were amassing great wealth for themselves. And he spoke directly against that. Paul was set up for wealth. And Paul says in his letter to the church in Philippi, I have learned contentment. I have learned what it is to be hungry, I've learned what it is to be well-fed, and he says throughout this that I have learned contentment. It's something that we can learn. It's something we can grow in. Well, what's the big deal? Someone would ask, what's the big deal? Well, let's look at what the big deal is, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We should pay attention when God's word says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I'm not saying that. God's word is saying it. You can read it right there. It plunges people into ruin and destruction. What else does God's word say? What, what does it matter how, how we treat or view money? Look at James 5, 1 through 6. James 5, 1 through 6, says this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What did Jesus say? Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. For he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The question is, where money becomes a great diagnostic tool, is what does money say about you? That either you manage it, or it manages and masters you. Money's a great diagnostic tool because we can look at how it's spent and we can see what we value, but we can see whether this thing is mastering us or if we are managing just a simple gift that God has given to us. What else? Look at verse 10. For the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Did you see that? Money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is all evil? No. Money is a root of all kinds of evil. Meaning this, that it's not all-encompassing. There are many different types of evils. Money is one type, but it doesn't even say that. It says something significant that we can't bypass. Look here with me, everyone. Verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. The love of money. What in the world does that mean? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils? What Paul is speaking to there is idolatry. Idols. In other words, when something is, when we give our love and our affections over to something so much and love it so much that it controls our emotions and our heart and our affections, that thing has become an idol. And money is a great diagnostic tool because it can point to what our idol actually is. You see, money's not evil. It's not saying that. Money's morally neutral. Our hearts are not. Our hearts are desperately sick as the prophet Jeremiah said. So, so what happened? Where did all this go wrong? If we actually turn all the way back and go to Genesis, what we actually see is this, is that gold is not a bad thing. As I just said, in this sense, it's not even a, a, a neutral thing. God calls it a good thing. Look at Genesis 2, 11 and 12. Remember, God is creating, he is giving. God is a giving God, so he's given. God gave this and God gave this and God gave this. And then we get to verse 11 In chapter two, it says the name of the first, talking about the rivers, is Bashan. It is the one that flowed around the land of Havilah, where there is gold. Look at verse 12. And the gold of that land is good. God called the gold that he created good. So what happened? Well, in Genesis 3, we see something turn over. You see, God was giving, and God was determining what was good. And then for, for the first time, we see Man, specifically Eve, see something and go, wow, it's desirable. Wow, it's good. And for the first time, we see someone taking something and saying, I want that selfishness, and it's going to be mine. It's a reversal. And then from that, sin enters into a fallen world. And what we see is the ramification of that, is our world become need. And first broken from our relationship with God, but relationally broken. We have to remember, greed and money, and all that happens in and around it actually affects relationships. It affects people. Well, what about the idolatry thing? Well, let me explain this. What, what, what I mean is that money is a great diagnostic tool that can point to the idol. It's, if someone is a jealous person, jealousy is a surface sin that we can look at and go, wow, that's jealousy. What is it rooted in? Sometimes jealousy can be rooted in this. That person sees approval and affection being given to someone else and they say that should be mine i want it for myself and they're just trying to clench to it therefore they have an idol of approval underneath that jealousy is this longing for a man's approval that is driving and it's coming out in jealousy look at how the downward spiral happens after sin cain murders his brother joseph's brothers sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver again What could have been driving them is they were jealous that their little brother had their father's affection and they wanted that approval. You fast forward and you see the Israelites giving their worship over. They are ascribing worth. That's what worship is. Giving their love and affections to a golden calf. We mock, yet our lives are filled with possessions as Americans that we worship. 
you fast forward in, in the Bible, there's this incredible story in 1 Kings. There's a man named King Ahab, and there's another man named Naboth, and Naboth owns a vineyard, and Ahab wants his vineyard, so he makes him an offer, and he's like, I'm basically willing to give you anything for this vineyard. Naboth tells King Ahab, I'm not going to sell it to you. Listen to this. It's wild. But King Ahab actually starts to throw a tantrum, and he goes into his room, and he turns away from food. He won't even eat. This is a grown man. Parents, we see this in our kids. If we're being honest, it's just a exacerbated picture of ourselves, though, and what we do when we don't get what we want. He's throwing a tantrum. He won't even eat. Why? Because idolatry is governing his heart. You fast forward to the New Testament, you see Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. They are struck dead because of their greed. You see Judas himself selling out Jesus, his Lord and Savior, for 30 pieces of silver that he doesn't even get to enjoy. But he himself is pierced, quite literally, even as it talks about here. We see the brokenness connected to idolatry of things that we worship throughout the Bible. Let me give you four idols that are commonly driving our money. So if money is a great diagnostic tool and it's pointing to our idols, because it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So the things that we love are the things we're giving our heart and our affections to. For instance, if a bunch of people are sitting around a table and you wanna know who's worshiping alcohol, it's not by having alcohol present at the table. It's by removing the alcohol from the table, then you get to see who has the alcohol problem. Because it's when, when people come undone. It's not when the idol is present in their lives. It's when we remove something from our lives that we've given so much of our heart and so much of our worth and so much of our affections to that if that thing's taken away, that we become melancholy, moody, crippled, in despair, angry, resentful, and we go, how can I live without this? It's with many things. We do it with relationships. One day, either my wife, Allie, or myself will have to view the other one in a casket. What I hope and pray is that the Savior is not lying in there for either one of us. Because if we make one another a Savior that we worship, we will both die that day. Idolatry, in the way the Bible talks about it, it's a big thing giving our hearts over to, to, to things, to worship the created things instead of God. What, what, is, what does God lay out in, in, in the first commandment? You shall have no other gods except for me. So what are some of these source idols that we love? Power. First one, power. For instance, money for you and your love of money can be driven by a love of power. You will use money to gain influence over others in a status quo in society. You can gain respect from your peers and others in your field. They can go, wow, that man or woman's legit. Therefore, you love power, and money is a means for you to get more of it. Control. You love control. I don't like the way my spouse spends all of that money. It just bothers me. Let me ask this. Is it any different that you hoard money in a sense for security to feel like you have control over your life. And then therefore you stow away all this wealth, package it tightly, wake up every morning, look at your stocks, look at your accounts, look at everything to make sure that your life still has the control and the security that you want. Because if that's lost, I don't know what I would do. We have to realize our love of money points to stuff. Years ago, my wife and I still get an allowance. That's how our budget has worked. But I would, as soon as I got my allowance, it was, it, it was $100, we were living in Reno. As soon as I got my $100, spent, just like that, gone. 
My wife's like, that's how you want to spend your money? I'm like, this is how I want to spend my money. What did I spend it on? Books. Why? Because I was fearful of looking incompetent in front of people on subjects as a new pastor. What I have to do to maintain control and approval is spend a lot of money on books so I can have a lot of knowledge so people will have some sort of respect and approval of me. We can trace things that we're spending money on, like approval. You will spend money because it provides a way for you to be accepted by others. You will spend it on addition to products, on supplements, on cars, on toys, and you name it, so you can be in a position to have social acceptance and love from others. My goodness, people, this is why the idol of vanity, the idol of an image, is something that can collapse and destroy your life because you're willing to sell and give anything, almost your soul, to make sure that we look and appear the way we want so we can have the approval from others. Here's another one, the fourth one. We have power, we have control, we have approval, we have comfort underneath all of this. I'm willing to spend my money because I love comfort. I will spend my money on anything that makes me feel comfortable. I eat what I want, I wear what I want, I'll spend my money on anything that keeps me from feeling that gross feeling, that one thing that I never want to speak of, discomfort. I know we're talking about money. Man, food is an idol. <laughs> food and gluttony is an idol. It's a sinful thing. Why? And, and, and people eat and overeat because they love that feeling of comfort. Regardless of what it is, one of these source idols, it's idolatry and it's sinful. And the love of money, look at verse 10 again with me, is a root of all kinds of evils. These are the roots, family. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so everyone in the room at this point goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not as wealthy as them. I'm, 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 I'm not as poor as them. I, and so almost every American somehow fits themselves into some middle class. I don't know that we're that we as Americans should be <laughs> comparing ourselves to one another. In fact, there's one time that I went to Tijuana and uh, I, I went down and I took my buddy with me. And, and I would say my buddy comes from the lower class. I was living in Roseburg this time and, and we drove down to Tijuana. I don't want you guys to have some high view of me that I was doing like a missions trip or something like that. I was going down there to get drugs, specifically anabolic steroids. I was not a believer at this time, so that should be said. And this is all pre-Jesus, and I was attempting to bring all those back. I did this three times. It's out. There you go. So I told my friend, my buddy Jeff, like, Jeff, when we go there, you need to know this. What you're going to see might be disturbing to you, the, 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 the level of poverty that exists. And he's like, dude, like, I got this. Jeff literally had a panic attack because of kids coming up to him, because of what he saw. We, we, we literally went to a pharmacy to get him like some Valium or something like that so he could calm down, which I'm thankful for because we got arrested and then taken to jail. True story. The problem is, is we compare ourselves always to the person to our left and always to the person to our right. I don't know that we should be doing that because overall, we're pretty well off. So how do we end this? The Bible has a lot to say about greed. It has a lot to say about money. It says here, read with me, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What do we do, church family? What do we do? Let me give three challenges, okay? And I know when I give challenges, some people are like, I ain't doing that. You know, okay. I'm just, but just hear them and consider them. But know that these are challenges that I would love for you today to walk in. Today, number one. Write down one thing that you can start living without, sacrificially, 
so that you can start living generously, so that you can start giving to your church family. Again, when God charges the Israelites in Malachi, he says, I have this against you. So, so he's charging me and he's saying, you are stealing from me. And they're like, how? And he's like, through your tithes and offerings. So what is one thing you can do? Right now, I would ask you, write it down. If you can tear it off, tear it off. And, and I would challenge you to do this. Put it in the offering basket. I would love to read it. You don't have to write your name on there, but just write it down and put it in the offering basket. It's also a great practice for you to even know where those are at and how to slip something in there, okay? <laughs> Number two, start with 10% of your financial income. Men, lead your families in this way, please. Not next week, not next month, not next year. Today. I don't know very many Americans that can't start with 10%. I love the classic response, love it. Pastor, I'm in debt. It's funny that your debt doesn't stop you from recreating in Disneyland, just from giving to your church family. Never meant the person in debt who doesn't stop recreating. 10%. This is not a boast, please don't hear it that way. Uh, yeah, it's just a setup that it wasn't a boast. When I married my wife, I, I don't know if I lied, I just didn't tell her what my credit score was because it was so bad, real bad. I basically saved everything for after the covenant. I'm like, now that we signed that bad boy, let me, let me share a few things with you, okay? One of them, I, I'm not saying that's good, okay? <laughs> I see your eyes, judgmental. <laughs> One of them was my credit score. We went to Kmart. I was like, let's get a big screen. And she's like, do you want to do it or you want me to do it? I was like, let's have you do it. <laughs> she's like, why? I'm like, I should probably tell you. I don't even know what the bottom credit score number is, but I'm confident I'm just a few notches below that. So I was not taught financial responsibility but I was floored by God's grace. Because if you know anything about my story, which you know some of it from today, I was floored by the grace God had bestowed to me. As a young single man, I gave 20%. I sense, and, and since that point, give less, having more mouths to feed, having a different income. My number two challenge, start with 10%. Number three, don't leave here today without signing yourself up to serve the local church family. Ask my wife direct questions. She can tell you when we were dating. I'm like, I, I wanna know. How do you know you're a Christian? You know, I, it's like, these are my things. You giving and, and loving and serving your church family says a lot about your theology. It does. And if you're like, man, I don't want to go sign myself up at the connect table because then everyone else is going to know that I'm the person the pastor talked about. Here's the cool thing. Put your image to death today as well. If that's an idol for you and sign up because there's many that can grow in this area. But let me end with this today because some of you are like, come on, man. Need some good news. Need some good news. I'm gonna name drop for a minute, so hang in there with me. Name drop. Used to have a coach at this all the time and it annoyed me. Hang in there with me. I'm gonna boast. I have a personal friend and he's the wealthiest man in the world. In fact, my friend is unlike any other friend, any other friend that you know. He has infinite wealth. My friend did what no one else would ever consider doing with their wealth. He set it aside. In fact, my friend had the highest position ever in the world. And he set that aside too. And he came to live in a public ministry as a homeless person to love and serve people. No one who's wealthy does that. My friend was selfless. My friend was the only person who never gave his heart over to idolatry, who never worshiped money, who never loved it and saw it as a means to gain something for himself, but put it in its proper place as a means and a tool to love and serve others. Then my friend died, and he died as an idolatrous criminal who was greedy and scandalous on 
a cross. Though there was no greed found in his heart, though he had never committed one act of idolatry. Why? And if you haven't picked up on it, my friend's name is Jesus. Why? The thing that floors me about God and his grace is this, that the man who had a perfect credit score became morally bankrupt on a cross so that he could take on all of our greed, all of our mismanagement of money, and all the wrath from a just and holy God it deserves, and then say, I will take that. And then what he says now, I will give you my perfect credit score. And what he's saying is, and this is the beautiful thing about the cross and about the life of Jesus, is that Christ was content in all things. He was selfless in all things. And in every way we're not, he takes that and says, that will never define you. It defined me on the cross. I became that. And what you became was this, content, selfless, giving, charitable, generous, and gracious, because I gave you that. He says, all of your sin, charge that to my account. Charge it. Continually throughout the Christian's life, all of our sin is charged to Christ's account. Preach this to yourself, starting today, starting tomorrow. Wake up preaching yourself this to yourself. My sin, Jesus says, charge it to my account. It's infinite. In other words, it's an account that has no limits. And he says, and charge this to yours. My righteousness, my perfection, my humility, my love, and my generosity. That's yours. That's the gospel. And that through it, we have what the Puritan Jeremiah Burrell said, we have every spiritual blessing available to us. Read Ephesians 1. God, our Savior, has blessed us in Christ Jesus with some. No, it says with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What do we have? We have union with God through Jesus Christ. In other words, your credit score was lived out for you. Your life of moral perfection, that was lived out 2,000 years ago. There's nothing you can do today to change it because the gospel's not about you. It's about Jesus and the life he lived. You can't fluctuate your, the score. That's been given to you, that's set. Meaning this, that on your best days, you're not getting a better credit score in God's eyes and more love. On your worst days, he's not lowering your credit score and lowering his love. His love is steady, consistent, steadfast and unchangeable because of what Christ has done for us. Amen? Amen. So know this, that if you feel shame or guilt or anything like that, that Christ steps in and says, no, 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 that's mine. I took shame. I took guilt. I took your financial misstewardship. I took all that. That is not yours. That's mine. My righteousness and perfection, that's yours. I love what Colossians says, and we'll end with this. 2, 13 through 15. Paul is saying this. Write this down, memorize it, put it in your Bible. Preach this to yourself. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who once were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling, listen, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. <laughs> That's it. The record of debt that stood against us, he nailed it to the cross. It's done. We are his. And then if we go back to that challenge list, he's given us the spirit to come and live inside of us, to empower us to live in such a new way. So you don't cut off idolatry because more idolatry will sprout up because that's our wicked heart. What we do is we replace worship. We ascribe worth. We, we, we fixate ourselves on God 
and his goodness and his grace. We fix ourselves on the cross and what Jesus has done, that Jesus being the most wealthy and infinite man, the, the one who made gold and diamonds, he doesn't need it. That man says, you are mine and I'm yours. The more we fixate on that, the more we understand the cross and God's love, the more our hearts are given over to that. We start to worship and then we realize we love the immutable. We love what doesn't change and our hearts and our affections are given over to that and then joy is the byproduct and we say, these things in life will never suffice. He will. I have it. I have him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Father, it is your grace that saves. It is your grace that sustains. It is the gospel, the good news that gives us a new and perfect credit score that we can't change. Your love isn't wavering. It's not rising and falling. It's constant. Thank you. Let our lives reflect the generosity you've shown to us. In Jesus' name, amen.